Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with Akil Amar and two special but now familiar guests. First, let me say hello to Akil. Hi, Akil. Hey, Andy. Let's uh, get to the main attractions. Indeed. Um, so please welcome back Professors William Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson, also known as Will and Mike, um, also known as Professors Bode and Professor Paulson. Uh, and uh, as many of you know, we had them uh, on our a couple of months ago um, for two episodes, which I should say are the most listened to episodes of America's Constitution that we've had in our 155 episodes. So um, we're thrilled to have them back. So welcome back, Professors Bode and Paulson. Great to be Thanks here. Thanks for having us. And for those of you who've been living under a bush somewhere, um, they uh, the reason that, the, that they have gained so much notoriety, uh, aside from the various uh, stellar things that they've done throughout their careers that we've discussed in great length in our earlier podcasts. You know, they had uh, an article uh, called The Sweep and Force of Section 3, uh, which appeared on the internet platform SSRN um, in August, and it has been accepted by the Penn uh, Law Review, Law Journal. Um, but I don't think it's it's been published in the Penn uh Law Journal yet, has it? No, we are in editing process, as law professors can attest, that is the arduous process of going through student editing and responding to their objections. So I think, is this right, Will, that they're anticipating it'll be out end of February or early March? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But just to remind everyone, it's already available for free download on SSRN from a First Amendment and, frankly, libel law point of view, it has already been made. It has already <laughs> been published, which means to make public, actually. <clears throat> it's out there in the world. And thank you, SSRN, for enabling scholars like Will and Mike and way back in the day, yours truly, to get stuff out there. Will was my, not way back when, he was my student, but more recently he was basically my editor. I didn't publish in a student-edited law review. I edit, I published in a faculty-edited law review called uh, the Supreme Court Review out of the University of Chicago. Will is the, the head editor of that project. Vic and I wrote a piece on ISL, on Bush v. Gore, and it finally appeared in print in the Supreme Court review, but earlier we posted it up on SSRN, and, and we thought we were doing pretty well actually with the downloads. But uh, then, then Will and Mike have put us to shame. But but SSRN enabled us to get it out to the world, including to the justices. And if it's published, it's not improper for a court to cite. It. We're going to talk about court cases and pending court cases. Actually, the Colorado Supreme Court is going to be very much engaged with the issues that Will and Mike have teed up for us all. But, but it actually is relevant that it's, it's not only forthcoming in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review, but it has already, from a technical point of view, which actually matters, been made public. It has been published. Here's why that matters. Because Judges really shouldn't have ex parte communications of various sorts. It's not fair to the litigants. If one person is whispering in a judge's ear and a litigant can't really respond to the arguments that are being whispered to the judge, this is not being whispered. Okay, it's out there in the world and it's fair game. So 
it, it can be cited by, for example, the Colorado Supreme Court, which is pondering the issues that Mike and Will have already teed up for the world. So l- let me just, uh, you know, follow up on this SSRN question. So, you know, you've got this article, it's going to come out in the in print, at which point it's presumably in some sort of relatively final form. Um, and now you're saying that you're responding to edits. Are you changing the download, the, the upload rather, on SSRN as you're preparing the uh, the article for publication in pen? We've done that once, and we'll probably do it one more time when there's a clean version. But I, I was going to say, this is in general, we made the choice uh, not to make a ton of substantive changes to the article. You know, if we were writing the article now, there are now a bunch of new court cases, there's a bunch of new scholarship that, you know, we would address. But we decided, especially because so many people have read the article as it stands, not to try to make the article a moving target, you know, not to add a part five or a whole bunch of footnotes that may be a new piece we may write. Uh, We were just talking about whether to, you know, to write an extensive, another salvo in this this battle. But this piece will be, in substance, more or less the same, so that it's not a moving target for people trying to deal with it. Well, I hope you'll consider this podcast then and a forum in which you can, you know, um, make make uh, you know edits or, or corrections or additions or new ideas or whatever. Um, and I'm sure our listeners would appreciate that. That's part of why we're here. So why don't? Yes, great, great. So why don't we start off just for, with a tiny bit of background for our our, our audience? Um, so again, the title of the article: "The Sweep and Force of Section 3. Okay, what what's Section 3? Section 3 is part of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was drafted and, and ra- passed and ratified um, after the Civil War in the early Reconstruction period. And we've talked a lot about it in recent weeks. We, we talked about it with Professors Graeber and Magliaca, specifically in the context of officer. And we'll talk about what that means, I'm sure, on this podcast as well. Um, one of the things that came out in that podcast is that the various sections of the 14th Amendment are related, are deeply related in ways that perhaps many people don't appreciate. Nevertheless, I'm just going to read for our audience uh, one more time, Section 3, not the entire 14th Amendment, but Section 3, so that, you know, give you sort of, hopefully by listening to this, even if you listen to the prior podcast, it'll kind of refresh your memory as to some of the arguments that uh, were made. So here is uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. Okay, that's it. Okay, so now let's talk about the article in the context of this section. So... Tell me about the reception. What uh, what would you say um, are the parts of the article that have gained the widest acceptance? You know, that there's been less pushback, and that you've had the most kudos on. So we start with Will. Sure. Uh, 
I think there's been relatively little pushback uh, to the proposition that Section 3 lives, uh, that it's still an enforceable part of the Constitution, that it's not limited to the Civil War, even that it's not just limited to things of the scale of the Civil War, sort of that it's a it's a real viable enforceable part of the Constitution. And there's been much acceptance, definitely not wide, definitely not complete acceptance, but much acceptance to the idea that that it's self-executing, that it's a currently enforceable rule of constitutional law, that it's not something that has to be activated uh, first by Congress. There are some people who disagree with that. There are people who claim not to disagree with that, but then seem to sort of let that creep in through the back door. But I think there's been been you know more more agreement that it's on the table and that you can have litigation of some kind in some format about about section three does that seem right to you mike yeah that sounds right in addition another of our propositions was that to the extent section three deviates from prior law section three supersedes or satisfies that prior law and there's been essentially very little if any critical commentary on that in fact the if if i can just sort of uh expound a little bit, Andy. The types of objections that have been raised to the article are are relatively few, and some of them are more in the nature of political objections, right? That following or implementing Section 3 in accordance with its terms would be a bad idea, that we should let the voters decide and we should not let the constitutional provision interfere with or alter the election process. or that it would be dangerous or uh, disruptive to give legal effect to uh, Section 3, even though it's operative and its terms apply, because it could be misused or it could produce unrest or even violence that people will object to uh, Trump being kept off the ballot. And so we, 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 should, we should retreat from... Uh, vigorous enforcement of Section 3 because of that prospect. Again, that's not really a legal objection. That's purely political objection. And I think, you know, kind of a regrettable one. Just in terms of backing up a little bit in terms of the, uh, you know, the acceptance of your propositions. So though you've detailed now which ones you felt were most accepted. Now, many of your propositions were backed. I mean, they were all backed up with various arguments or evidence. Um, And you know, would you say that some of it, uh, that's some of that evidence has been, you know, trashed or some of the arguments, have been, you know, then people might have come up with the same conclusions, maybe. But so, for example, one one thing might be, you know, you talk a lot about Griffin's case, right, as being, you know, it's a problem for you in a way. And here's how you resolve the problem. Um, has there been a lot of pushback on that and saying, no, Griffin's case is actually the answer here. Um, you're, you know, you're wrong. And this is why. Andy, why don't you remind everyone about what Griffin's case is? Well, I'll let our law professor okay. do Why don't you do that, Steele? You're the... Uh, oh, I, I'm actually enjoying, uh, <laughs> for once, being able to lean back and, and have uh, others uh, drive the bus. Griffin's case is a circuit opinion by Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase, refusing to allow the writ of habeas corpus to release somebody named Caesar Griffin, who had been convicted by a judge who would seem to be disqualified by Section 3 either because that's not the scope of the habeas statute, because the judge who convicted him was a de facto officer, or Chase's main argument, because Section 3 is not self-executing. You know, I have heard people say, 
maybe Griffin's case, maybe we didn't need to be so tough on Griffin's case because it obviously doesn't really apply. Like it obviously doesn't really apply today that some people do sort of see it as a, as a habeas case that doesn't speak to the broader question of ballot eligibility. We were kind of giving chase, taking chase at his word of what he was trying to say and then explaining why, what he said was wrong. There has also been a kind of, uh, an interesting frolic and detour in an article by Josh Blackman and Seth Barrett Tillman about Griffith's case. Among other things, they claim that some of the federal reports of Chase's opinions, including his opinion in the related Section 3 case about Jefferson Davis, they claim that report was falsified by a federal reporter with Confederate sympathies who wasn't really reporting the true fact of the matter. I spent some time trying to figure out that was true. I'm not sure whether it's relevant, but there have been a few sort of things like that. The major piece of evidence that's since been put on the table has been a study by Kurt Lash of the legislative history of Section 3 in the sense of, you know, what were the drafts, uh, drafts of legislation that he argues are kind of like Section 3 and should be seen as Section 3. He draws a bunch of conclusions from that that we think are, are erroneous that I'm happy to talk about. But that's been the only major sort of new piece of evidence on the table. Will you mean contra to your position? Because, of course, professors such as Mark Graber and Gerard Magliocca, um, even in this podcast, um, in previous episodes, have, I think, adduced lots of corroboration and ad- additional evidence that's supportive Correct. of your and, and Mike's uh, factual and, and, and legal arguments. Yes, that's right. Sorry. There's been a, a Gerard has been finding tons of, of unreported Section 3 cases uh, that can only be found in newspapers that he's the first one to unearth that corroborate the general view that Gerard and we take. And Mark Graber has uh, you know, an exhaustive discussion of various uses of the phrase officer that corroborate a lot of our our views. And this is a, you know this from, from doing historical research. There's a point there's a point where you've done a whole lot of reading, but you have not read literally every piece of paper that existed in 1868. And it's always a good sign when every time a new piece of paper becomes uncovered and it says something, it confirms what you were trying to say the history said, and it's a good sign. If history is like a science, it's, you know, what one hopes for is a certain kind of replication. Exactly. That other scholars, when they read the same pieces of paper that you've read, read them the same way. That's one kind of replication. But yes, another one is, gee, if we are right, we would expect that when other people look sort of, you know, in other buckets, look under other lampposts, because we, you know, one person, two people, you know, one person can't do everything, two people can't do everything. What one hopes is that, yes, other scholars will in general find evidence supportive of the proposition that smoking causes cancer yeah. or what have you. I know I'm, I'm about to actually break my arm by patting ourselves <laughs> on the back, but I, I want your honest assessment of whether we brought the right people onto the podcast after you. We had you for two episodes, but then we brought Gerard and, and Mark on. Were those the people, in your view, who are doing the, the most serious and substantial stuff? Because that was my perspective from slightly the outside, but you guys are insiders. I think what Gerard has done in terms of historical research and Mark Graber is just absolutely wonderful. It is really thorough and supportive. It is, in a sense, some of it, some of Mark's historical research is background information that sort of confirms what we had, uh, the conclusions we'd reached as a textual exegetical matter. I think it's all very strongly supportive. Those are great people to have on. I think that that's, you know, this is a, a, 
a very interesting notion, the question of confirmatory evidence. It reminds me of a, uh, a discussion I had with the Yale professor and great uh, biographer John Lewis Gaddis, who uh, wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of George Kennan. Um, so I read it, and uh, uh, actually I knew George Kennan personally. But anyway, and I, I spoke with... Uh, with him about it. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of the Robert Carroll biographies. And I noticed that, you know, when you want to prove something, you know, you give a few pieces of evidence. Um, that's a little bit different than Carroll. He says, yeah, Carroll will give you, he has 19 pieces of evidence. He'll give you all 19. You know, and I teach my, my students not to give more than three. Uh, and and that, that makes the point. And then all you do is wait for somebody to come up with the opposing argument. And if they don't, you know, you've proven it. And that's reminiscent of what we heard from Gerard and, and Mark, which was the question of how many people on this question of officer, how many people you know, historically weighed in on the other side? The answer being zero. So uh, I assume then, can we confirm that with you as well, that in your research, you haven't come up with contrary voices on this question of whether the, the pre well, it's really two questions, whether the president is an officer, and whether the presidency is uh, an office of the United States. I, I think it's fair to say, Andy, in a, or in under a the appeal, United States. that we've seen no evidence to support the reading that anybody in the 1860s understood the president to be anything other than an officer of the United States and an officer under the United States. In our original article, we spend about eight or 10 pages explicating the meaning of Section 3 in terms of its coverage and uh, the offices it uh, prohibits people from holding, in part because uh, professors Blackman and Tillman had issued earlier articles or commentaries suggesting that the president wasn't covered, and we wanted to make sure to address that argument in the, in the name of completeness. Um, the argument has been raised again by a few, a few people. Our friend Stephen Calabresi has embraced it, but we think that all of the evidence that has been raised by commentators and historians pretty well decisively rejects that argument. Mike, is there anyone, and or Will, is there anyone from the 1860s whom you've encountered who ever said, the following. We talk about officer and office and president and presidency. Is there anyone who ever said, oh, an oath to support the Constitution, which is textually referenced in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, is different from an oath to preserve, protect, and <laughs> defend the Constitution. And the president, of course, under Article 2, swears or affirms to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Oh, but that's totally different. That, that's not covered by the more generic uh, language of an oath to support the Constitution. Have you found anyone, um, either of you, or know of anyone uh, in the 1860s or 70s um, who ever said anything like that? No. No. Uh, you know, it's impossible to prove a complete negative, but, you know, there is no evidence that we have seen, no evidence that anybody has uncovered that, that distinguishes between the presidential oath and the general oath that all federal officers and uh, members of Congress and judges are required to swear to support the Constitution. One other thing, and we have your word, that if you do find 
some evidence, even if it's, you know, from some dog catcher in Podunk, whatever, you'll let the world know, right? Yeah. If we found evidence that was strongly against our propositions in any material respect, we would we would make it public. But so far as we know, no prominent defender of the Section 3 language ever embraced this distinction, and no obscure defender or even opponent of Section 3 ever raised the suggestion that the presidential oath being specific and more detailed than the general oath of support for the Constitution somehow meant that the president was not obliged to support the Constitution and is not covered by that same oath. I I think that argument is really bordering on really the frivolous and irresponsible, and we've not seen any historical support for that in any source whatsoever. If we find one, we'll let you know. Exactly. The technical term is a, a specification, right? So the law often has a general provision and a thing that makes it more specific. And that's not unusual to people who are trained in the law. You can have a general command that everybody has to take an oath to support the Constitution and then a more specific version for a particular officer whose name is spelled out. And only a very almost artificial intelligence style textualism, I think, could, could lead you to think, well, they're not the same because they use a different word without realizing that support is a specification or that preserve, protect, and defend is a specification of support. Okay, well, that's good. So let's get to um, then some of the, uh, and of course we're alluding to one of the critiques of the, uh, you know, the argument that you made, which is that the president is even covered here. So, uh, um, uh, but, uh, you know, Mike mentioned some others. So let's get to them and and maybe get a little more specific about them and, and see if you have any additional response. So these are people that have, responded to you. Um, and so you could respond saying, well, we discussed that already. Um, or you may have some additional thoughts, you know, that you, if they were standing here in debate with you, you know, what might you say to them? So Mike mentioned um, the notion that uh, enforcing Section 3 is undemocratic, that it somehow interferes with, with the right to vote, that the people should be heard on who they want to be president regardless of, of this, well, not necessarily regardless of it, but ultimately that that should over, override this. And what's your response? Uh, well, we'll all start just with a couple of thoughts. We actually like the idea of democratic choice and protecting freedom of choice to people to choose the elected officials they want. Democracy is an essential part of our constitutional system. That said, there are constitutional provisions that specifically limit who you can choose. I can't vote for Barack Obama again. He's constitutionally disqualified by the 22nd Amendment. I can't vote for George W. Bush again because he's constitutionally disqualified under the 22nd Amendment. Bill Clinton is constitutionally ineligible. Arnold Schwarzenegger is constitutionally disqualified, and I can't vote for him. Now, I think most people in just sort of common sense language would not say that that interferes with democracy, that that's undemocratic or frustrates the right to vote. It is just a specific constitutional limitation. So I think the argument that enforcing Section 3 should be left to the voters and would be undemocratic to enforce it as a limitation is kind of a misleading argument entirely. It would suggest that what the Constitution does to limit eligibility 
should not be enforced. And, and that really is not a substantial argument. Will, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, well, one other example is when somebody is impeached, when Congress impeaches a president, one of the things they can do is disqualify him from holding future office under the United States. And I've heard some people, even skeptics of our argument, like our friend Steve Calabrese, say, I don't think the president is covered by Section 3, but I do think Congress should have impeached him and permanently disqualified him from holding any office under the United States under the impeachment clause, which is another way of saying a lot of people are okay with that anti-democratic consequence if it comes through an impeachment. And I'm not sure why Section 3 uh, would be any different. I think sometimes people who are reading an old constitutional provision do something where they think, well, the framers of this provision were reasonable people. I'm a reasonable person. I am queasy about enforcing this provision. Therefore, they must have been queasy about enforcing this provision. Therefore, we should read it the way I want to read it. And I think Mark Graber made this point well uh, on, the, on the last episode. If they were writing the provision in a, you know, having having spilled a lot of blood over the question of constitutional obedience and constitutional enforcement and what risks they are willing to take, maybe we ought to have a little bit of humility about whether we can impose our, you know, queasiness on the people who actually wrote the Constitution in the wake of the Civil War. Additionally, I think Mark has made the point, I think you've made the point, that when you're confronting a provision that doesn't have a lot of gloss on it, that hasn't been a routinely part of our practice. Maybe there's no precedent against it, but there's no precedent strongly in, in favor of it. It seems like a clean slate. There's sometimes additional anxiety. People have already internalized, Will, the, the rules of impeachment. Okay, And we've actually seen disqualifications in the past. You said, look, actually the rules for presidential eligibility, you, you made the point in an earlier episode, are stricter than the rules for Senate eligibility, the rules for House eligibility in terms of age and, and years of citizenship and actually type of citizenship. One has to be a natural-born citizen to be president, but not to be Senate representative. And people kind of forget that in a way. That kind of recedes into the background. So they, they don't realize, oh, Section 3 is actually of a piece with all of that. But because we, we haven't seen it before, we get freaked out about that one and, and not about the stuff that we take for granted. So, you know, I personally agree with you, but here's three arguments that I think I've heard that uh, might push back on this uh, a little bit. Um, I mean, I think some of them you've already responded to, but let me, uh, in, in your paper, but... One is that the notion of whether someone is 35 or whether someone was, is a natural-born citizen uh, is objective and that the, uh, you know, the provisions under Section 3 are, are more subjective. Um, and therefore, well, if we're going to have a subjective choice, then you know, per perhaps that's you know, subject to a different standard. Um, that's one thing. Andy, 35 is easy. Right, you can tell whether someone is 35 or not with pretty little factual evidence or dispute. Whether someone is a natural-born citizen of the United States may be slightly factually more difficult. Whether someone has engaged in insurrection or rebellion is a more difficult factual question of applying the legal standard to what somebody actually did. It is. Uh, it does require more work, more presentation of evidence. 
But I would disagree with the characterization that it's subjective. We think Section 3 has an objective legal meaning, and the question of whether that objective legal meaning disqualifies someone based upon their conduct in a certain set of circumstances depends on what the facts were. And in, in that respect, I know we'll talk about this a little later, the Colorado opinion, uh, the decision of the district court is very interesting in that it finds a lot of the factual predicates on which you would base disqualification. But I think the fact that a question is easy, a, a particular qualification is easier to apply and the different disqualification is somewhat harder to apply uh, doesn't mean that they are not equally constitutionally operative. It means that one takes a little more work than the other. There, there's a sort of a famous fallacy uh, that I think people sometimes accused fairly just a Scalia of committing of thinking, you know, rules are better than standards from the rule of law point of view. Therefore, when we read the Constitution, we must pretend that it contains only rules and not open-ended standards. But unfortunately, for better or worse, we have to take the Constitution as it comes. So I do think it's right that Section 3, you know, introduces a, a more of a standard, uh, or a thing that has more, more issues of judgment, more issues of factual determination, as, as Mike says. I'm not sure I would have written it that way if I had known if I had been alive in 1868 and known the whole course of human history. But I think it's a it's a tempting but important mistake to think. Therefore, it's not there. One final thought on that: it's probably pretty cut and dried in most situations to know whether someone was convicted in an impeachment court and disqualified from future office holding. By an impeachment court. That fact is relatively cut and dried. But of course, one can't be convicted properly in an impeachment court and disqualified properly in an impeachment court unless one has committed high crimes and misdemeanors of a certain sort. Oh, and that looks, you know, that a little bit more standard-ish. Um, there, there's a little bit more kind of play in the joints. It's more like Fourth Amendment reasonableness then it might be like 35 years old. And Congress judges that. The House in the first instance, the Senate ultimately. And of course, when we're talking about section, and, and Will, earlier you see mentioned impeachment, um, because you, uh, one qualification for office is you can't have been disqualified by an, an impeachment court. And who decides actually whether you're disqualified? Well, that's actually the House and Senate in an impeachment process. And they are deciding whether you're, you're guilty of a high crime and misdemeanor. Here, of course, even if one is disqualified in the first instance, that's not ultimately the end of the question because there's still the possibility of a pardon. And who decides a pardon? Actually, the Congress um, it, it's, there, it's a different voting rule. Uh, perhaps they, they have to affirmatively pardon by two-thirds, whereas one-third plus one in the Senate you know, would result in your acquittal in an impeachment court. But there is an interesting connection there. And in our previous episode, I think um, Gerard in particular emphasized this, that even if you thought that Donald Trump, for example, is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that's not game, set, and match uh, because Congress still, and, and they're politically accountable, Congress is, um, have the ability to actually uh, undo that and with pretty you know, broad discretion. So uh, 
This is a related point on this, and again, I'm not. Uh, this is just you know things that I've heard or that I think people might say. So you talked about impeachment, Akil, and that Im- impeachment is, is something that the public recognizes. They, well, you know, they they rec- they see it as part of the legitimate process of government. But there's a wide range of possible enforcement mechanisms of Section 3 that the public is not acquainted with. This could, you know, go to the Minnesota Supreme Court. It could go to the Colorado Supreme Court. It could be the Secretary of State in some uh, state or other, uh, or maybe not. Or in some states, no, you, can, you can't do it because you have to have the primary. Or, so it's, you know, there's quite a, a range, and the public may see this, that the enforcement mechanism is not as legitimate in their eyes to disenfranchise them the way that impeachment can. So do you see any any argument, any strength of argument there? Or how would you respond to that? I think this is a, I mean, I, I think this argument often comes from a lack of familiarity with the electoral process. Right? Also, th- this is the process that determines in every year who gets to be on the ballot and by what conditions and what the, what the rules are. It's an incredibly intricate area of law. Um, full of checks and balances and judicial review. And I think, again, people don't think of it very much because most people, to the extent they're engaged in politics, you know, watch some stuff on TV and then they get a ballot that has some names on it and they don't really think about where do those names come from and who decided and how does the system work. That's probably good. That's a sign of democracy is pretty healthy, that you don't have to worry about, about you know, how the water and electricity is getting to your house and how the names are getting on the ballot. But, but this is, in that sense, the, the sort of time-tested process um, I think it's interesting that we have not seen a rush by secretaries of state in either direction to sort of weaponize this in an obviously partisan way. You know, we've seen, uh, you know, hearings and courts and and the sort of ordinary apparatus of of uh, state election law. So I think it's probably true. People don't really think about it. Um, and of course, there is the Supreme Court ultimately available to review these questions if if we need a national resolution. One illustration of what Will just said, let's just bracket the two big parties. But in many a presidential election cycle, a Green Party candidate might be on the ballot in many states, most states, but not necessarily all the Libertarian Party candidate. And if, and if, you know, those are the wrong examples, I promise you, I can find other examples of a third or fourth or fifth party candidate who genuinely is on presidential ballots in some jurisdictions and not in other jurisdictions. And here's a, here's a question really more than a, than an objection for, you know, for Mike, Mike, you mentioned earlier that, um, that if someone is disqualified under Section Three, but no one's actually done it yet, okay? That you. So, in other words, uh, let's say that Trump has actually has engaged in insurrection, but we we don't have any ruling by any judge or any Secretary of State yet that he's that he's off the mm-hmm. ballot. It's self-enforcing, but someone has to enforce it. Um, so, uh, if if we're at that point, you said you can't vote for such an individual. What does that mean that you can't vote for them? So, for example, uh, Akil likes to talk about the fact that Lisa Murkowski was uh, elected by write-in ballots in in Alaska. So, if someone if someone is not, maybe you can't put them on the ballot. But is it is it true what you said that you can't vote for them? That you somehow does that mean that your vote is invalidated, or that you have committed a crime, or what does it mean 
uh, that you can't vote oh, for Oh, Andy, I think I was just speaking colloquially. Arnold Schwarzenegger is constitutionally ineligible to be president. I guess I could vote for him, but he cannot be president. Barack Obama cannot be president again. I suppose I could vote for him, but he cannot become president. Whether a vote for a constitutionally ineligible candidate is valid is frequently a matter of state election law. Whether you can put an ineligible candidate on the ballot is a function of what state election officials do. So it, it isn't literally that you can't vote for him. It means your, con your, your vote cannot constitutionally be effective in giving someone an office. If someone is disqualified from an office, they are disqualified. And that essentially gets implemented or can uh, through the state election processes. And the, the goal here is not so much to weaponize the ballot, also as to make sure that the whole process proceeds in a lawful and orderly fashion. So one worry, like imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to be on the California ballot. Just you said, I know I can't be president, but but you shouldn't disenfranchise people. There are probably a million people in California who want to vote for me anyway. One reason California might want to not put him on the ballot is putting him on the ballot is enticing people into throwing their votes away, voting for a candidate who will ultimately not be allowed to vote. Uh, to hold office. And so one worry we can have is if when push comes to shove on January 6th or January 20th or whatever, Donald Trump is not able to take the oath of office, we might worry that misleading everybody into thinking he can run now is just setting us up for a huge uh, anti-democratic cataclysm if and when that happens. One additional point, Mike's early work especially is very strongly in a departmentalist tradition. Will is a departmentalist. I'm a departmentalist. We, we don't think that there, uh, the Constitution is a rule only for courts. It's a rule for courts, but for lots of other folks in all sorts of other contexts. And if you're a certain kind of constitutional Protestant, this I'm borrowing language from Sandy Levinson, you think that each person has a soul and has to make certain moral judgments. That's true e actually of individual voters. So I would think the Mike Paulson that I knew way back when we were roommates would have said, and I'm interested if he does say, if I vote for someone who's ineligible constitutionally, there may be someone down the line. I can maybe physically vote for Mickey Mouse, mm. uh, literally or, or whatever, but for someone down the line is going to say, Mickey Mouse is not constitutionally eligible. So someone other than Akil, that's one point, and he made that point. There might be some official who says, I can't count that vote. Okay. But I would have thought Mike would also say a truly serious citizen, and the Constitution is law for all of us, not just for officials, but for citizens as, as well. A truly serious a citizen might need to tell herself, I really like Trump. I like Trump a lot. Trump is actually my first choice in my heart, but I am not permitted, if I really take the Constitution seriously, to vote for Trump because Paulson and Bode and, and Magliocca and Graeber and others have persuaded me. I have actually read these pieces. I'm one of the 100,000 who downloaded this. They've actually persuaded me that he's ineligible. And it's not just that I'd be throwing my vote away, possibly because some other official down the line would disregard it. It's something that I actually can't do even if I want to do it. 
Mike, is that your view? Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about it that deeply, but if the Constitution applies to everybody and everybody has an obligation to act faithfully to the Constitution, it, it's the obligation of all citizens. Of It is the obligation of all citizens who would be faithful to the constitutional rules not to vote for someone who is constitutionally ineligible to be president. Now, that's obviously not as strong a command on your conduct as it is to a state court judge or a federal court judge who's called upon to apply the Constitution. There, you have a direct governmental responsibility to enforce the meaning of the Constitution. It's less obvious for voters, but I think voters have an obligation to adhere to the Constitution a moral obligation, a political obligation, a civil, civic obligation. Jurors have an obligation to enforce the Constitution. Judges, executive officials, members of legislatures have an obligation to adhere to the Constitution. That's part of what it means when they all swear an oath to support this Constitution is that they, you know, we, we all stand up and say, look, the Constitution supplies a rule. I must enforce that rule within the scope of the power that I exercise. So if I exercise power as a voter, I should exercise my right to vote consistently with the Constitution. So this is one of the one of the moments where we're pulling back the curtain a little bit. I remember there were a few places in the article we had to massage the language because I am a little bit more of what people sometimes call an, an author or an oath theorist about this. And I think what's that's definitely true as to everybody who takes a constitutional oath. They have they have put themselves in obedience to the Constitution, uh, even more so if they've done that in exchange for power. They are obligated to wield that power conditional on the oath. I think ordinary citizens who have never taken an oath to the Constitution, so natural-born, not naturalized citizens, might not be in that position. They might mm. be entitled to be Garrisonians or to be Robert Coverins uh, or, you know, they might be entitled to say, I recognize the Constitution as the supreme law of the land, but I'm against it, and I refuse to obey it in, in con you know, in conscience. I, it's hard for me to put myself in the, in the mental state of a person who felt that way on this issue, who thought, I recognize Trump as constitutionally ineligible, but I am so devoted to Trump that I will take Trump over the Constitution. But I think they might be entitled to do this. Now, we talked about confessing counter evidence, so I will confess, Justice Anthony Kennedy took the opposite view, took Mike's view. I once started to write an article about this that I've never finished, but at a naturalization ceremony in Denver where he was issuing the constitutional oath to you know, newly naturalized citizens where they uh, take an oath of allegiance that natural born citizens don't have to, he explained to his children in front of everybody that this oath was just symbolic or declaratory of the exact same constitutional obligation that all citizens owe to the constitution that while other you know while he is ch his children had never done this, they also had the same obligation that he was about to swear to everybody else. I'm not sure I share that view, but that is a you know sort of competing view. A bridging view might be that um, a true Garrisonian and and look for the audience. Mike was really interested in all this stuff when we were roommates. Um, he worked very closely with the great Bob Cover, who wrote all about the Garrisonians, and some of Mike's earliest work is actually in this tradition. Now, the true Garrisonians who thought that the Constitution was a covenant with death and an agreement with hell and that there should be no union with slaveholders actually absented themselves entirely from 
the political process because one couldn't participate in it if one thought it was evil. A bridging an intermediate position might be when you vote, you are implicitly, even if not technically taking a certain kind of oath to the system of which the vote is a part, you are implicitly doing that. And the true path would be, okay, you, you don't have to vote at all, but if you vote, you're in effect buying into the constitutional system. Well, I mean, I think there's, you know, you have, you're talking about sort of you know, the benefits of being of being a citizen and, and, and recognizing the constitution, which is you get to vote or something like that. But there also, it, it also imposes duties on you as a citizen. And, you know, I think in Will's con- conception uh, that he uh, elaborated earlier, one might say, okay, I'm, I'm liberated from some of these duties. I don't have to serve in the army, maybe, or something like that, because I, you know, I, I object, I'm not a part of this system. I haven't taken an oath, you know, or something like that. That's more, that, that's a, a, you know, a higher level of defying the Constitution, I would say. It's more in the realm of, you know, civil disobedience and things like that. And now civil disobedience, the precept of civil disobedience is that you expect to be punished, you know, and that you're willing to endure that punishment. No, and I'm not sure that that goes into this whole uh, conception. Anyway, we're getting a little bit off off the topic, but it, but it is interesting. Actually, this is what Mike and I used to talk about at 3 a.m. This is like the best of college, where you're you're actually these are these are deep and interesting questions, truthfully, about like the nature of law and morality and obligation and patriotism. Absolutely, the nature of an oath. You know, does have to be expressed. Hey, Andy, can, so, I, can right, I just so, put a point on it? I think that I think that voters should be faithful constitutional interpreters. To the extent that a voter says, "I am a citizen and I I abide by the Constitution and I respect by the Constitution," um, they should. You know, they don't swear an oath, but they kind of have a moral obligation to behave consistently with the Constitution, and if their conclusion is that somebody is constitutionally disqualified from office, I agree with Akil, they shouldn't vote for that. See, I thought that would be Mike's position on reflection, because I listened to him carefully when we were roommate, and that mm-hmm. seemed to me the, the logic of his You mission. listened carefully when you weren't okay, already just... screaming back. <laughs> okay, we're just going to pause for a moment to... Uh, provide the code for those of our listeners who are seeking to gain continuing legal education credit from listening to this episode, and well, you will have well earned it, um, and uh, not because it's onerous, but because it's educational. Um, and of course, we thank the New Jersey Bar Association for par- partnering with us. Uh, in order to gain this credit, you go to podcast.njsba.com. NG, NJSBA stands for New Jersey State Bar Association. And you enter the appropriate code. And the code for this week is service. The code is service, S-E-R-V-I-C-E. And that's not case sensitive as usual. Okay. So just to resume here, so we've now dealt with um, one of the uh, pushback areas that you've that you've received, which is uh, in this question of whether this is somehow an undemocratic process that undermines the right to vote inappropriately. Um, another that you alluded to is the idea that, well, okay, but enforcing it might be might be dangerous, might be a bad idea. 
either because it might set off kind of an arms race of sorts with a retaliation by the other political party. Will alluded to the fact that this hasn't taken place yet, but, you know, nevertheless, it's a concern of, of some. Or that there might be a problem, actually, and I think Trump has alluded to this uh, himself, actually, uh, and as he has in the past on related matters, notoriously, is that it might incite violence on the part of his supporters. Mike raised this point uh, earlier, so Will, why don't we start with you in terms of uh, what kind of response that you would shout to the rafters now if someone said that to you uh, in a debate? So the risk of, of retaliation and, and disarray? Yeah, well, the risk of, of retaliation, political retaliation, and the risk of violence. Yeah. I, I think there's something to this as a factual matter. I think there is some reason to worry about that. And I will say, the reaction to this article helps me understand where people like Chief Justice Chase were coming from when they decided that instead of taking the 14th Amendment seriously, and instead of taking Reconstruction seriously, they would kind of knuckle to the threats of uh, violence and retaliation that they got in the South. And, you know, they chose the path of, of avoiding picking a fight and instead uh, not being faithful to the Constitution. So I, I, I get it. I, I guess I can't say I can't say it's the right choice. Um, I think, you know, part of the point of a constitutional system and part of the point of having people take an oath to the Constitution is to say that that's not supposed to be on the table, right? Lincoln... I think probably knew that the civil war was leading to massive deaths and was not always sure he was going to win it. But Lincoln thought he didn't have a choice because he'd taken notes of the constitution to preserve the union. And, you know, it wasn't up to him uh, whether or not it was worth it. And I guess I feel the same way uh, about, about section three. I, I will add, yeah. uh, I think this is a reason to have this taken care of sooner rather than later. Um, so we, we're going to talk hopefully soon about the various state cases about this. But I think one attitude you might have is, oh, there's going to be a lot of unrest if we do this. So let's put it off as long as possible. You know, maybe it won't be necessary. I remember during the Trump impeachment, people saying, well, maybe we don't have to impeach him because he probably won't run again. If he runs again, he probably won't make it. You know, so maybe we can wait. But I think one important lesson is we probably ought to tell people sooner rather than later what, this, what the deal is rather than let this sort of continue to heat up. Yeah, I think one, one way to think about it might be, you know, do we think it was wrong to, to have the various, various court cases and, and so forth in the aftermath of the 2020 election um, and to go through the electoral process as prescribed by the Constitution, Electoral Canon Act, and so forth, because we might get violence on January 6th? Right. Well, we did get violence on January 6th, but I don't think anybody thinks that that we were wrong to have courts hear cases and and you know to have Congress meet on January 6th right. um, as they were constitutionally prescribed to. Um, not you know the, the the fault lies in the in those that rioted, not those that conducted the legal processes. Right. I mean, there's a phrase "massive resistance" that's usually used to refer to the Southern refusal to obey Brown versus Board of Education. You know, sometimes in violent ways. And I think the usual lesson of that was not that the massive resistors were right or that their objections made Brown wrong. And I think we could stand to maybe relearn that lesson sometimes. Uh, let me just add this point. I don't think we should fear the Constitution. I think we should faithfully apply the Constitution. And I think we definitely should not let people hold the Constitution hostage 
to political threats of violence. If the right answer as a matter of faithful constitutional interpretation is that Trump is disqualified from office, that is the right constitutional answer. You know, it's almost unimaginable that we would say to the Supreme Court at the time that it's considering Brown versus Board of Education, don't decide this question correctly. Don't invalidate segregation because there are going to be some people who are going to be upset and are going to react with hostility and maybe even violence. Therefore, don't interpret the Constitution correctly. I, I find that uh, reaction, which has appeared in some newspaper editorials, really, really disturbing. It's, it's a clear faithlessness to constitutional principle. Let me put forth what I think is a strong, maybe the strongest version of the other point of view. And since you both mentioned Brown, it is a point of view that is very close to a, an important article, Mike, that our friend and teacher Paul Gewertz published in the Yale Law Journal when we were students called Remedies and resistance. Here's the argument. If the judge's job, and by judge we could mean an election official also, but, but the uh, is to actually, as faithfully as she or he possibly can, enforce the Constitution. Let's say, and they, they've deeply internalized that. Let the heavens fall in a way we don't count deaths uh, on the other side of the balance pan. We don't count the costs of police force. Our job is to make the constitutional principle real in the world as to the maximum extent that it lies within our power. And you might say, well, that means you just enforce it to the hilt, always. But suppose the person says, here's what I'm actually worried about. I'm actually worried that if I try to enforce Brown fully, I won't be able to enforce it at all. But if instead I gradually phase in desegregation, I'll actually in five years have more enforcement of Brown than if I do it all. If, as a matter of remedial discretion, if my job is to make equality real in the world, I'm going to get more of it if I go slow. The, and that's the article, Remedies and Resistance. The argument here would be, suppose I were 100% convinced, and, and maybe the answer is, you're never going to know 100%. And so you just fight the hypothetical. But if I honestly believe it's almost a moral certainty that if I try to enforce this, the problem is there are going to be more insurrectionists who in the end are going to be in power in three years or five years because Trump is going to be able to do various things and, and Trumpists such that we're actually from 14 Section 3's own perspective, going to be worse off. That seems to me the strongest and more, this is, how, this is what law professors <laughs> do, the, the interesting hypothetical on the other, you know, to, to, to hold your feet to the fire. I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting argument, but how is it a legal argument? Well, um, because remedies, for example, it will knows and might know are uh, sometimes discretionary. Equitable remedies allow, listen, it's called with all deliberate speed. Um, and that's part of Brown. And that's what Paul Gewurz is theorizing in an article called Remedies and Resistance. Anyway, I'd love to uh, get uh, uh, Mike and Will's <clears throat> take on well, this. Well, uh, Will and 
Akil and I all teach federal courts or federal jurisdiction. Uh, my students are taking their take-home federal jurisdiction exam now. And just in the past couple of weeks, uh, we discussed a case called Pullman versus Texas Railroad Commission. You all know it as the origin of what is called Pullman abstention. And it was a 1941 case where the Supreme Court, for among other reasons, um, did not decide a substantive question in order to avoid a sensitive issue concerning racial discrimination. It's 1941. It's a dozen or so years before Brown versus Board of Education. And we had an interesting class discussion. Do you fail to uh, uh, enforce the proper understanding of the Constitution because for some reason you think the country isn't ready for it. And it was interesting, the variety of student responses. Some say, yes, judicial power should not be used even if it's obligatory. The, the judicial power should include a power not to enforce the Constitution if you think enforcing the Constitution is a bad idea. Other students argued vigorously, and I was on this side, that your duty as a federal judge, as a state court judge, as any constitutionally sworn officer, is faithful interpretation and enforcement of the Constitution. And if the Constitution supplies a rule, your power as a court is to exercise judgment in accordance with the law and not to be trying to manage the politics or the policy of your constitutional interpretation. That's for the nation and the nation's political officials. I think that the, I'm very strongly of the view that where the Constitution requires a specific result, you must reach that result and you can't duck it as a constitutional officer. Now, in some circumstances, the courts in fashioning remedies for constitutional violation might have lesser intrusive measures and more intrusive measures from which they have some discretion to make a choice. I don't see that as applicable in the Section 3 context. It seems to me to come down to a sharp either or. Either this candidate is disqualified or is not disqualified. It's not like ordering desegregation remedies where you might proceed one step at a time, order more limited uh, remedies rather than more extensive remedies. I don't see, what, what are you thinking of in terms of the equitable discretion that might exist not to enforce Section 3, Akil? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a really nice distinction. Yeah. You can imagine a version of this argument that's, that's not going to be equitable discretion. It'll have to be more like, suppose it's it's the case that if we let this insurrectionist go, this will be the last insurrectionist. People will sort of move <laughs> right. on. But if we stop this insurrectionist, he will bring forth a tide of new insurrectionists who will insurrection away all of the judges who are against these insurrections and soon mm. will just be in hostage to insurrection and insurrection everywhere. It's a little bit more of a Lincoln type argument of, you know, must all the insurrections but one go. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, here's, I, I will say, I actually think, I think this is what people told themselves when they were selling out reconstruction and selling out the constitution and allowing redemption oh. to take over the South. Oh. I think I think this may even be what Sam M.P. Chase was telling himself. I think he was telling himself, look, we gotta get the South to swallow the 14th amendment. So, Let's make it go down easier. And I'm happy to take out section three if it'll make them accept the rest. Uh, this is, some of this is in Cynthia Nicoletti's book on the trees and trial of Jefferson Davis. 
or just various versions of you know well if we if we lock up the clan now you know there'll just be more clans so let's 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 go mm. easy on the clan and let them you know kill some people with the hopes that they'll stop killing people later and i guess i'm not enough of a historian to know whether that was a you know miscalculation i i don't feel good about it i i come down where mike does though on the question of sort of i think if you're a judge telling yourself that you have been given that discretion the discretion to to accept this insurrectionist in the hope that there will be fewer in the future you are taking upon yourself a really dangerous power and i'm not sure it's a power that you've been given at all if you have again you're playing with fire you're you know, you're torturing somebody at the hopes of finding the nuclear bomb or whatever the right examples are. Especially when Congress has the has the ability to power to to you know give them right. amnesty. If it's that important, then let them right. do exactly. It. That was Gerard's argument yeah. um, in a recent exactly. Episode. And this this is uh, we talked a little bit about the different presidential of the different oaths people take. I think Lincoln had an argument that the presidential oath among the various oaths gives the president some of this discretion that the ultimate job to preserve, protect and defend the constitution to the best of my ability seemed to acknowledge that it was not always possible to do a perfect job. And the president was going to have to make some choices about how best to preserve, protect and defend the constitution as a whole, as commander in chief. And there's an argument from the presidential oath, but judges take an oath to administer justice without respect to persons to do equal right to the poor and the rich and to faithfully and impartially discharge the duties of the Constitution of the United States. Judges are not supposed to sell one person out because their opponent is a really big and powerful guy who has a lot of friends. That's like the core of the judicial oath is that you're not supposed to make that kind of calculation. So I don't think it would be right for a judge to think that he is the second coming of President Lincoln. <laughs> the thing I like about this conversation is that we're not just dismissing it out of hand. We're actually engaging with it. And, uh, you know, I think we're coming to the same conclusion that we would have had we dismissed it out of hand. But but I think that it's, you know, it, it's a respectful engagement with it, and I appreciate that. Okay, well, let's let's move on to uh, – I'm, I'm anxious to get to the cases, but let's just dispose of these of the remaining arguments here. Um, one, I think, has to do with the fact that there are these criminal trials that are going on at the same time. You know that that Trump is is under indictment here, there, and everywhere, and some of the some of them arguably bear on questions of whether or not there was insurrection, and perhaps you know that's a better forum to determine it than some Secretary of State somewhere, um, and that you know that we that we're getting ahead of ourselves here, and that we're preceding the criminal process when actually the political process, should, if this is a political process, should follow. Or maybe it's not a political process, but the section, the section three process should follow the criminal process. Um, your reaction? Well, I'll, I'll Mike, start with start that. With you. <clears throat> section three enacts a legal rule that is in no way contingent on the result of a criminal prosecution. Criminal, uh, criminal prosecution for various crimes, insurrection among them is one thing. And Section 3's disqualification is entirely separate. If they wished when they drafted Section 3 to make disqualification a consequence of criminal conviction, they could have said so. Uh, 
Section 3 says nothing of the sort. Instead, it parallels other constitutional language imposing qualifications from offices. No person shall be a senator who hasn't attained the age of 30. No person shall be president unless his certain qualifications have been met. Section 3's language is language of disqualification that is in no way keyed to criminal prosecution. Now, I think it's intuitively appealing to some people to raise the argument, well, Trump hasn't been convicted of anything yet. Criminal conviction is its own separate process. Section 3 imposes a rule of disqualification, and it, it is really its own rule. The 22nd Amendment disqualifies people who've served, who've held the office of president twice before. If you've served your eight years, you are disqualified. That's, we wouldn't think of that as being a criminal punishment for persons for having served eight years. It, it, there is really no necessary connection between Section 3 and criminal prosecution in any event. Well, let me ask you a question then. Um, you know, some, although they're not connected in the sense that you could imagine conduct that is not criminal that would, that would result in a disqualification and vice versa, but, we, in a criminal ca- but if there is overlap in a criminal case, um, there is a certain standard of proof that's, that's required, right, by beyond a reasonable doubt or something like that. What's the standard of proof here? It doesn't really say. Um, what 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 standard of proof does any official that seeks to, you know, ad- administer their office on, uh, with attention to Section Three? What standard of proof do they need to 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 uh, rise to in order to determine that someone shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to enemies? So uh, it's true the Constitution doesn't say, as the Constitution itself doesn't spell out any burdens of proof. It doesn't even spell out the reasonable doubt burden of proof. This is uh, again one of the things that's more well spelled out by election law. You know, so the each of the states that's litigating this has its own rules about you know how to try to prove that somebody's been erroneously put on the ballot and or what if somebody's been erroneously excluded, what to do and the like. Um, I think in a lot of these cases, it's a civil proceeding where the answer is the preponderance of the evidence that is the side that's more likely to be true uh, should be followed. So this is something where we've got a lot of other process kind of filling in. The Constitution. The Constitution does not admit of the prolixity of a legal code, as John Marshall once said. Okay, so so in other words, it may vary from state to state the level of uh, the bur- the burden of proof or the level of, of proof that you that you would and, need. and depending on yeah the exact context of the challenge. Um, but still, at the end of the day, that this is a question of of what happened, um, and so the hope is that everybody will converge on what happened as best we can tell. Although you could imagine a scenario where one state might rule differently than another simply because they have a different burden of proof, that seems a little strange when the when keeping someone off the ballot in one state, you know, has impl- national implications for a national election. Uh, it's true. Although again, each state each state makes its own choice about what to do with its what to do with its ballot. As we're talking about with some of the more minor parties. Mm-hmm. And and Andy, those minor parties actually can affect who who wins the state. You know, I give you Ralph Nader, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or um, Ross Perot, or or what have you. So I promise you, there are third or fourth or fifth party candidates that are on 
the ballot in some states and not others. And in certain swing states, their presence could actually be outcome determinative, decisive. Um, so I think Will is saying, gee, you know, we're already there. Um, for those of us who kind of follow election law in detail, that is not a surprising or novel um, result. Now, there's a lot, of, a lot of other things that we could discuss, um, but hopefully they'll be they'll come up as we as we talk about the cases that have unfolded. So, um, there, I, I'm aware of three cases in Minnesota, Michigan, and Colorado uh, that, um, and they're all a little bit different. Um, why don't we start with Colorado because that's uh, actually as we speak today, as we record this today, the oral argument will be starting in about half an hour um, at, at the Colorado Supreme Court and the appeal, or, or, or appeals, I guess, um, of the rulings by the Colorado District Court judge. Now, as you watched the district court process unfold, maybe you can talk a little bit about how the claims in your article were implicated and followed or not followed. Uh, in that process, and then what's at issue in the appeal, and where do you stand? You know, in t- where does your article stand, and is there anything that's happened here that's caused you to change your mind about any of these things? Uh, that's a lot. I'll, I'll, to, I'll start. So let's start uh, with Mike. There's nothing that has occurred in the Colorado proceedings so far that has caused us to change our mind about any of the legal propositions that we've seen. Here's what's the most important thing about the Colorado case there's been a trial. They have witnesses, they had testimony, and the trial judge made findings of fact. Now, as practicing lawyers will emphasize, the factual determinations reached by a trier of fact will only be set aside by appellate courts if they're clearly erroneous, if they are without without the basis on which a reasonable trier of fact could have reached this conclusion. The trial judge in the Colorado case reached a number of very important factual determinations. She determined that January 6th was an insurrection, that it was intended uh, by many of the actors involved, and that Trump incited it and intended to incite insurrection. There are any number of factual determinations that this judge reached concerning how Section 3 applies to the events of January 6th and to the broader context of the attempt to overturn the election results. I think that's going to be very important because I don't think the Colorado Supreme Court would be in a position to say that those determinations are clearly erroneous. Judge held a trial, took voluminous testimony, and reached factual conclusions about what happened what was intended to happen, and who did what. That's really important. At the end of her opinion, after reaching all these factual determinations, she makes, uh, Judge Wallace makes a conclusion of law that notwithstanding all these other things, Section 3 just doesn't apply to the president because the president is not an officer. Somebody very soon after the opinion came down, maybe it was talking to you, Akil, uh, uh, just over the phone, said, you know, what's your reaction to this case? And I said, great findings of fact that support constitutional disqualification. And then one great big whopper of an er- error of law, 
that is open to the appellate courts to re, uh, reverse on appeal just by a, is this the right legal answer standard or not? So I was actually very encouraged by what happened in the Colorado trial court proceedings. And I think the errors of law will very likely be corrected uh, by the Colorado Supreme Court upon appeal. Um, do you feel that the in, in making the findings on insurrection, which you're considering findings of fact, that there are nevertheless, uh, you know, interpretations of the law that she um, you know, had to had to use like for a definition of insurrection, you know, or whether this, you know, plausibly falls under that. Is that entirely a question of fact or is there also, you know, some of this legal nuance there that the appellate court might take Well, I think the, the meaning of the term insurrection under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is a question of law. The question of whether Section 3 is self-executing or requires implementing legislation is a question of law. The question of whether Section 3 remains legally in force is a question of law. Before producing her trial decision, the judge rejected a lot of challenges to the application of Section 3 based on these legal arguments. So all of her legal holdings, while being subject to plenary review by the Colorado Supreme Court, are pretty straightforward and supportive of the position generally that uh, Will and I took in our article, except for the last conclusion that the president is not an officer. And I think that one is, is very vulnerable. So the, the really important thing in my view, just to reiterate, is that the factual questions of how these legal standards apply to what happened has been determined by a trier of fact. And I, I think that could be very influential and, and maybe dispositive of, of how these cases are concluded. Two, two additional things. So on insurrection, for instance, the judge relied, among other things, on Noah Webster's 1828 uh, Dictionary of the English Language, uh, which has a definition of insurrection, which we also relied on heavily and relied as well on some of the sort of pre-Civil War context, such as the Whiskey Rebellion and Shays Rebellion and earlier insurrections have been given context. So I think we, we find a lot of agreement there, uh, which may be unsurprising. There is actually, and I didn't notice this the first time I read the opinion, I guess there is one point on which the the judge also disagreed with us, although I don't know that it matters, uh, on the question of the relationship of the First Amendment to Section 3. We argue that, you know, to the extent that Section 3 and the, and the 14th Amendment are in conflict, the 14th Amendment prevails, and that there might be a tiny bit of conflict around things like the Brandenburg Standard, that it might be that a full and fair reading of the phrase engaged in insurrection occasionally includes words or actions that might have been held protected under the modern definition of Brandenburg. The trial court decided that the Brandenburg standard for incitement did apply to Section 3, that, that she would sort of narrow the definition of Section 3 incitement just a little bit, so as to, which is very relevant to thinking about Trump's speech at the ellipse. It doesn't matter, because as a matter of fact, she concluded that Trump's speech you know, unambiguously meant and was understood as a call to engage in actual violent attack on the Capitol. By talking to experts in armed rebellion and and you know careful and people who were there and the like, so that's like one legal issue, you know that if anything, she decided against our position, but then concluded the facts were so strong that it didn't really matter. So I don't think that's going to really come up much on appeal. I, I think that's an excellent point. Will is that she said you know the Brandenburg standard says 
assuming it applies, she said that would be the standard that applies, but it says that speech can only be restricted if it's directed toward and intended to produce imminent uh, lawless action. And she said that was Trump's intent. The evidence is that it was intended to, designed to, and understood as an incitement to illegal uh, violence against the Capitol. And so even if you apply the stricter First Amendment Brandenburg standard, she concluded that is satisfied on my understanding, my findings of fact concerning intent, purpose, understanding, and the message that was meant, that that Trump meant to convey to his supporters. Now, so you, you argue that that and you're saying now that it doesn't really matter if you accept her findings of fact. Um, but what is your argument that the Brandenburg standard does not apply? Uh, so the argument is that there's a basic proposition of how to reconcile two parts of the Constitution where they come into conflict. Uh, it's actually discussed by Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers in the essay that, that more famously defends judicial review. Uh, and Hamilton describes the the long-standing common law rule. It's still the rule in our system, which is when you have two enactments at the same level, you know, two statutes or or two constitutional provisions, you try to read them together. But if you can't read them together, the more recent one is controlling because you have the Congress or the people have the power to change the previous rules. So we try to harmonize Section Three with what came before, but to the extent there's a conflict, the Fourteenth Amendment is an amendment to the Constitution, and it can amend the First Amendment. And so to the extent there's a conflict, which again, we think is, is not huge, uh, it's section three's standard that controls. This is more important when thinking about things like ex post facto and bills of attainder and due process, which people actually use as arguments against section three. So don't enact this because it will be an ex post facto law. So it's very clear that enacting it is rejecting that principle and you shouldn't artificially narrow a constitutional amendment on the grounds that it's unconstitutional. Does it matter uh, whether or not you can you believe that the people that enacted the Fourteenth Amendment thought about it? You know, thought about this uh, First Amendment standard. Um, yeah. Well, and it, it's unlikely in that Brandenburg had not been decided uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at the time. Well, but well, they may not have thought of it. Well, but but Brandenburg is a standard that's that a that a. Uh, a judge is elaborating based on their understanding that this is what the Constitution means. So it may have meant the same thing, you know, right. earlier. So right? the, I don't think it matters because the ultimate point is that we, the people, we, the living people, have the power to make law. And so if we really want to do something mm-hmm. and we put it in the Constitution and say, this is what we're doing, then that controls, even if some clever person later comes in and says, oh, you forgot to say, mother, may I? Oh, you forgot that some unknown mm-hmm. provision of law was was stepping in your way. It, that would be undemocratic. And Andy, okay. my own take on this is that uh, Brandenburg shouldn't be understood just in isolation. It's it's a rule in part about uh, criminal punishment, um, and it it's just its principle under its own terms doesn't really sensibly apply in in various other contexts. Um, we might have a very very high bar before we put you in prison for 10 years or maybe the rest of your life. And that may be a very different bar than if we're just, for example, deciding whether um, you should be an officer of the United States. Mm -hmm. Can I interpose a question as if the moderator, 
Akil, I was wondering what your reaction was to the conclusions of law and the factual determinations of the trial court in the Colorado case. When you and I actually did have this conversation, and Gerard and I had this conversation, and we all said basically the, the, the same thing, that um, when it gets to the Colorado Supreme Court, they're going to decide the issue of law um, de novo for themselves, but a trier of facts, determination of fact, are going to be entitled to wait. So I, quite independently, I think we all looked at it the same way, truth be told. Um, mm-hmm. You and Mike and, uh, excuse me, you and Gerard and uh, yours truly. I have one comment also. I think it's puzzling, but also kind of hilarious that people who clearly don't want this to be the answer, people who clearly want to find some out, seem to be converging on the president is not an officer of the United States. <laughs> people from from Michael Mukasey to Steve Calabresi to Judge Wallace all seem to be converging on this as the argument. You know, it's not the out I would have predicted. It's not the out I would have chosen. Uh, but there's something about this this argument that's that's causing people to converge on it. Maybe that should make us rethink our confidence. But I've I've been back to look again and again, and look if we're wrong, this is not why we're wrong. So there was a case in Minnesota, uh, well, and a case in Michigan. So let's talk about the Michigan case. Um, So can you tell me a little bit about what happened uh, in that case? The Michigan case uh, is in essence a case about the political question doctrine. Uh, The opinion is a little bit more of a mess, so I'm actually not sure even after reading it. I understand every different argument the court was trying to make, but I think its core argument was this is not for me, a judge in the Michigan Court of Claims, to decide. This is a, a question really for Congress to decide. And I think the judge even mentions the possibility of the the January 6th process or some other sort of unknown process or hypothetical things Congress might do. But but in some way, I think the bottom line of that opinion is this is above my pay grade. So the if, if that were, in fact, correct, Congress doesn't really get to weigh in, do they, until... January 6th, until the, the election is held, right. really. So you could imagine that you're hoping Congress is going to issue some kind of legislation, some kind of a, a procedure or process for, for judging these cases. That's actually tricky in the case of presidential elections. It's somewhat controversial how much Congress can regulate presidential elections because the Constitution says that it belongs to the states. So if it's a political question, it's not clear it's for Congress. Hmm. But, but there is the January 6th uh, electoral count process for counting, um, so maybe that's the idea. And okay. even if Congress has a role, and I hope we get a chance to talk about that before the end of this uh, episode, I believe Congress has an important role, but I don't think Congress is the only entity that has uh, a role. There are issues about primary ballot access. There are issues about general ballot access. This is an issue that can arise in all sorts of contexts, all sorts of cases and controversies and and scenarios. So I just want to pick up on one thing that I have told lots of folks about the the Michigan case, about you know above my pay grade, and I'm just a you know judge on a court of claims. That's right. Okay, so so I'm going to give our audience genuine advice. If I'm investing my money on my 401k or something like that, I'm going to pay attention to people's track records of investment and have they do they have a good one or not. If, I, if this is above my pay grade, this is the problem of judging in general because you can't be an expert on everything. Maybe you're not an expert on anything. You're a generalist. Oh, but you can figure out who an expert is. And on whether this is a political question, doctor, a political question, 
my own view would be, hmm, who's most likely to be right on that? Hmm, maybe it's Will Boat <laughs> because actually uh, there's this case book. It's called the Hart and Wexler case book. It's been cited more by the Supreme Court than any other case book in the history of case books. It actually invents pretty much the idea of a case book. And oh, Bode is actually the editor of this case book, which has a huge section on the political question doctrine. And Bode is actually cited, you know, rather a lot by the United States Supreme Court, more so than anyone in his generation. So I'm not bound by what Bode thinks, but but if I actually have to just begin to think about, since it is above my pay grade, you know, who might be a good person to actually pay at least some attention to, you know, whether this is a political question, I might start with Will Bode. Um, just, just saying. I think the Michigan Court of Claims judge had a fundamental misunderstanding of the political question doctrine. The political question doctrine does not exclude judicial review of legal questions that have political implications. There are any number of Supreme Court cases and important federal law cases that have political implications. So as I teach my students, political question doctrine is, is sort of a weird term of art. It doesn't mean you can't decide cases that involve politics. The cases that the political question doctrine excludes from federal court decision on the merits are, dis- are cases where the Constitution's text assigns the exclusive responsibility of applying its terms to an alternative branch of the federal government. So the classic cases become impeachment. Impeachment determinations are not for the judiciary to upend because that entire process is constitutionally committed by the text of the Constitution to Congress. That isn't the case, as Akil pointed out, uh, for Section 3. Section 3 does not say the Congress shall determine. The Congress shall determine. The only power of Congress is a power in that last sentence to undisqualify somebody. So it's not textually committed to Congress's exclusive determination at all. Another branch of the political question doctrine is the courts will not decide a case if there is a lack of judicially discoverable and manageable standards, which is kind of a fancy jargonistic way of saying, there's no rule here. There are no laws. There's no standard that we can apply that would be part of the judicial rule. And in a sense, the whole burden of Will's and my article is to say Section 3 is capable of interpretation. Yes, there are issues, there are questions, there are problems, there are wrinkles, but interpreting and applying Section 3 is a straightforward matter of applying your usual rules of constitutional interpretation to a new and different provision. So I think the the state trial judge was just way out of his element and way off base in saying that there is no, that, that these types of questions are just non-justiciable by courts. I think that's just clearly wrong. Okay, which is not to say, as Akil was saying, that Congress doesn't necessarily have a role under certain circumstances, but that it's, but that other uh, deciders, you know, can can intervene in in the interim or right. uh, in, it may under not have other an circumstances. Role. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to that in just a minute, but let's just first dispose of the Minnesota case. Um, so, uh, Will, you want to tell us a little bit sure. about that? This case? is uh, the first of the these cases that was filed. Uh, and the Minnesota Supreme Court has original jurisdiction over this kind of election law claim. And in essence, what they decided was 
as to the primary, Trump can be on the primary ballot because anybody can be on the primary ballot. There are no rules. It's just up to the party. So the party wants a dog on the primary ballot. They can have a dog. <laughs> uh, we're just we're just here to serve the party. As to the general election, that's not true. Uh, and they decided they would wait and see whether they had to deal with the general election. I think as a matter of election law, this is actually a quite defensible distinction. Um, there is this idea that primaries are a place where, where parties have a freedom of association. Uh, as a practical matter, I can't help but have the sense that the Minnesota Supreme Court's attitude was, we were the first one to get this case, but we are not going to be the first one to answer it. You know, go bother somebody else. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know if that's the best way to behave, but it, it's understandable and not necessarily lawless. But you did say earlier, and you're right, and this is a classic Hart and Wexler issue. Mike mentioned earlier Pullman case. There's some there are some judges, they have a certain sensibility, like Felix Frankfurter, don't decide more than you have to. Hopefully things will just go away. And and Will clerked for John Roberts, who sometimes has a, a certain sensibility of that sort, a minimalism, um, don't decide more than you have to. But Will also said, and we've also talked about in previous episodes and maybe even this one, John Marshall and saying what the law is, Marbury style, declaring the law. And he's saying on an issue such as this, yes, there are some costs about possibly deciding things anticipatorily and needlessly. Maybe you decide things something that, that would have gone away quite naturally, but there's also a real cost in waiting because people, ideally voters, would like some guidance early on about who at the end of the day really is eligible and who at the end of the day isn't eligible. And this is one of the reasons, and this is in the Hart and Wexler casebook that Will is co-editing, why we have things like declaratory judgments, because sometimes there actually is a real value and virtue in saying something, what the law is, and saying it actually at an earlier point rather than a later point. So I I think when abstention doctrines work well, it's because there's a consensus that there's somebody who is the right person to answer this first. So at least the idea of Pullman abstention is, here's a tricky question of state law, the state should get the first crack at it, or various kinds of abstention. Abstention doctrines don't work as well when you're already in state court, federal courts don't necessarily have jurisdiction, and so everybody is kind of pointing their finger at some other court in the hope, more like a hot potato, in the hopes that they won't be the one holding it when it when it's time to actually answer the question. And that can create the risk that just nobody, you know, nobody wants to do the hard job of having to decide a case that's going to make people angry. So in, in bottom line on the Minnesota case then is, um, you know, maybe they were right to put it off uh, because they really don't have jurisdiction over what the party can and can't do um, on the, in the primary, but they didn't rule out coming back for the general Indeed. election. No, they, they kicked so the can down the road and, you know, probably as Akil said, they're, they're hoping that this issue doesn't, it gets resolved by someone else. One, one of the interesting things that, that I'd love to hear people's thoughts on is what is the psychology of the judges who are looking for ways to avoid squarely addressing the legal issues? Is it that they, you know, as Will suggested, that it's a hot potato and they just don't want to handle the hot potato? What What is your sense, Akil and Will, of, of why judges, at least so far, have been looking for escape hatches? 
Well, there are at least two, uh, just very briefly, and one is that many have internalized a certain legal tradition. There are different uh, meanings of the phrase judicial restraint, but you know, many actually have been taught that minimalism is a virtue. If it's not necessary to decide something, it's necessary not to decide something. We, we have doctrinal labels for this that are core of Will's casebook, the Hart and Wexler casebook, cases like um, or words like Ashwander um, and phrases like judicial minimalism. So one whole set of explanations are internal explanations. It's a certain vision of the judicial role. It's actually one that I generally do not share. Mm. I'm more of a John Marshall, say what the law is kind of fellow. I'm a student of Owen Fiss who believes in norm declaration, and especially believes that in certain contexts, it's necessary to decide something earlier rather than later to give people guidance about legal consequences of actions that they're contemplating. So there's one whole set of possible explanations that are utterly internal. And then Will gave another set of possible explanations. One way is saying, you you don't want people to be angry at you, but we talked about this earlier, Mike. Okay, if you're worried about rioting in the streets, you know, you may be worried about rioting on your street and you may have kids at home, you know, and a spouse and it's not just you. And honestly, Andy and I were just at a Supreme Court oral argument and we loved it and we're going to talk about it in future episodes. And the justices, we were so impressed. They've done their homework. They're, they're really admirable. And I'm listening to Brett Kavanaugh and through my in my head, I'm thinking, you know, not so long ago, there was a guy with a gun and um, other deadly instruments and duct tape and other things and, and plastic sheets. And, and the guy was apparently within yards of Brett Kavanaugh's house at 2 a.m. with murder on his mind. And I'm not making that up. I'm not hallucinating about that. And Brett Kavanaugh has a wife. He has kids at home. There are two possible sets of explanations. And one is utterly internal and then there are some of the external things that we've been talking about. Well, I think, you know, you can't, it's terrible and you need to have adequate security, but you can't be a judge and not, and kick the can down the road because you're afraid to rule on the case. You know, it's, you know, that's, that's bad performance. I'm sorry. But we um, also should call out those um, in our ecosystem who are throwing fuel on a fire by stoking anger and and resentment and and encouraging violent reactions to potential legal rulings that might be adverse to to their uh, positions. Okay, so so those are the three cases that we've seen, and I I, I imagine there'll be more. Um, Plus these are, you know, (laughs) in a sense, none of them really resolved anything. because they're, they're, one's on, on appeal, and another one is they come back later, and then I'm not sure what the, th- what the Michigan one is. That one's that. also on appeal. Um, okay. So some, but ultimately, someone has to decide. Uh, and so who becomes the, who are the decision makers in this pathway? So we've got, you know, the district court judges, maybe Supreme, state Supreme Courts, Secretary of States, Secretaries of State in the first place, uh, to bring the cases, possibly depending on the state law, and then ultimately, are there decisions that might one might consider sort of final decisions, unappealable, relatively unappealable, on this track or the other? That any of them do any of them stop with state supreme courts? Uh, do any of them stop with the, with the U.S. Supreme Court? 
And to what extent do they ultimately stop with Congress? Well, should we talk? Will, you want sure, to weigh well, in maybe, on that? Maybe this is a good segue to talk about Congress. So I think on questions of state law, the state Supreme Court is basically final. So the extent the state Supreme Courts decide as a matter of state law, you know, we don't, we, here's how we deal with this. That's basically final. On questions of federal law, like whether the president's an officer of the United States, those can go to the Supreme Court. Wouldn't be impossible to imagine the Colorado case going to the Supreme Court. But uh, all of those are just the gateway question to, you know, who's going to be on the ballot. Then we're going to have an election. Then we're going to have electors. And then ultimately, whatever the elective votes are, are all going to get sent into the Capitol to be counted. And eventually somebody's going to be sworn in in front of God and country. Um, so maybe Congress is the next step to talk about. Yeah, my thought is that Congress is an important decision maker. And the word judge doesn't appear explicitly, but I think it's implicit in the structure of the thing. And I think it's strongly supported by precedents such that Congress does have the power to say when they open up the electors, and in theory, they don't know what they're going to find until they open them up, their kind of secret ballot of a certain sort. Oh, someone voted for someone who's 34. I can't count that. Oh, someone voted for Barack Obama. I can't count that. Oh, someone voted for George W. Bush. I can't count that. And I would say for the same reason, a conscientious congressperson could say someone voted for Donald Trump, an elector that is. I can't count that because on my um, uh, faithful understanding of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, I'm persuaded by everything else that Bowdoin Paulson have said, and I think Donald Trump is not eligible. And I think that's actually a permissible thing for congressperson to actually say and do. And I also think, I think that just as a matter of basically first principles, because they are really, in effect, the judge, there's no one else who could, you know, know the issue beforehand, how the elector actually voted is, again, uh, supposedly secret. Also, I think in the practical nature of the thing, maybe the disqualifying events took place January 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, the morning of the 6th. Um, and there's no way you could imagine any other you know, official, as a practical matter, weighing in. And finally, I think there are precedents, and the relevant precedents are actually what Congresses have done in the past. The first Congress, there wasn't a Supreme Court in existence. It made the relevant determinations of which electoral votes were valid in 1789. This issue arose with Jefferson, Adams, and Burr in 1800-1801. Congress made a call, 1824-25, 1876-77, but also in 1872-73, Congress actually decided not to count certain electoral votes because some electors had voted for someone that they knew to be dead at the time. Horace Greeley. So I think those are a lot of precedents for the propriety of congressional adjudication, if you will, um, in certain situations. Um, Mike, you wanted to? Yeah. Andy, there? at the beginning of this podcast, you said, you know, there have been reactions and comments to your articles or anything that, you know, has caused you to change your mind or given you pause. Akeel's argument that Congress would have a role in refusing to count votes for an unconstitutional for a constitutionally disqualified individual is the one point of difference where between what Will and I said in our article where where, where I actually pause. Uh, in the end, I think we're, we we just reach a conclusion. We don't spend a lot of time on it. We say that 
every government officer who has power and duty to enforce the Constitution must enforce the Constitution. The narrow point of disagreement, and I'll concede some uncertainty uh, to Akhil on this point, between Akhil and us is whether Congress's duty to open and count the votes includes a substantive power to reject votes as not proper votes. In other words, whether the duty to count the votes is merely ministerial or whether it's substantive. I have two arguments, and they're not knockdown arguments, as to why it's not a substantive power. Where Congress is given a power to judge elections and returns, the text says so explicitly, and they are ultimate backstop judges of congressional elections, and it's committed to each house. So where they say so, they say so, and they don't say so with respect to presidential elections. The other thing is where the original Constitution granted Congress a role in determining the president, it was when the Electoral College had failed to produce one and the election is thrown into the House of Representatives. These, to me, seem to be strongly suggestive textual arguments that Congress does not have a substantive power to reject electoral votes because they think they were improper. They might have a vote to say, they might have a rule in saying, are these the actual ballots submitted by Wisconsin or Georgia? But they can't judge the constitutionality of what the electors did. Now, I can see that of all the arguments that have been raised in the discussions about our article, this is the one that concerns me the most because I think Akil does have some good points. Um, and I think if we write something more on this, we might want to wrestle further with it. I, I don't think we'll reach any different conclusion from the one we reached. But I, but I think that this is, this is a point of vulnerability to some extent. What, what do you think, Will? We're, we're pulling back the, uh, the curtain yeah. and, and finally admitting doubt on something. I agree with you. This is one of the this is one of the points where our minds might be changed. I don't think they have been. I'm not sure they will. Uh, I would add two things. So I think you know I am a little more willing than you to give some credence to what James Madison called liquidation, the practice of the political branches in the face of an ambiguous constitutional text. And so, to the extent that the Twelfth Amendment is ambiguous on this point, Akil's precedents are powerful. To the extent it's unambiguous then I think they're less powerful. Uh, and that's, that's the one question is not just, you know, what it says, but how ambiguous is it? There is also a statute here, the Electoral Count, well, now the Electoral Count uh, Reform Act, which amends the Electoral Count Act in the wake of some of the problems on January 6th, that I also don't think is totally clear on this point. So the Electoral Count Reform Act says there are only two grounds that you can object to an electoral vote in Congress. Either one, the electors of the state were not lawfully certified under a certificate of ascertainment of appointment of electors. That is basically, these are not really the votes, right? These are fraud votes. Or the vote of one or more electors has not been regularly given. Mm. That phrase regularly given was in the original Electoral Count Act. And that phrase is the phrase that some think includes voting for a disqualified person. But that's a complicated history that sort of has its own interpretation and liquidation. And then a question of when Congress reenacts the statute recently, what is it understanding that to mean? Um, 
you might also think some canon of constitutional avoidance applies. So if it's unclear whether Congress has the power to throw out votes because of disqualification, maybe regularly given should be read a little bit more narrowly. I'm not sure about any of these points, but those are those are you know those are the steps in the analysis in the final exam. Uh, <laughs> and here's um, and and here, friends, is an analogy to some of the evidence that you've uncovered when Reverdy Johnson had a question about whether presidents were covered or not, and evidence that Gerard and uh, Mark Graber have um, brought forward. The Congress that's passing the early electoral college acts knows what happened in 1872-73 that they they said you these votes for Horace Greeley don't count because you can't vote for a dead guy because a dead guy's not eligible now I'm not even sure they made the right decision substantively on that oh but my friends they made that decision and everyone knows that they made that decision when Congress is passing a statute not so long after that, because there's another you know, set of issues in 1876, 77. And once again, they kind of made various decisions. But definitely, I think the Greeley precedent is interesting. Will properly says there's liquidation, a settlement. What happens after a constitutional text has been adopted, whether it's Article 2 or the 12th Amendment, early implementations, but there's also you know, um, what happens before a relevant constitutional text is adopted and what do they have in their minds? And I do think they have in their minds the Greeley precedent is a really important one. And I've testified before Congress, actually, 30 years ago on the Greeley precedent. If you think about a timetable, you know, there's a period of time when you want to know who's on the ballot, right? Uh, one is when you actually have the election, you know, or, or another is when the Electoral College meets, Right. And another would be when Congress meets. Um, so when Congress meets, if something happens to call, you know, some threatened insurrection or actual insurrection or something like that happens between when the Electoral College meets and when uh, Congress meets, mm-hmm. who's going to decide at that point? Um, mm-hmm. I guess you could have a court case yeah. um, in the interim. Uh but uh, let's, and what let's about- hypothesize an insurrection that is occurring on the morning of January sixth. Huh. You know, yeah, and I know it's a crazy <laughs> hypothetical, but just you know, hours before Congress meets, yeah, uh, could we really have a court case then, or would we say actually Congress might be a good decision maker, not the only one, but they would have a you know a role well, there. One additional point in favor of your argument, Akil, on just a full disclosure, might be to unite this with one of Gerard's themes which is, of course, Congress has the power to grant amnesty. So as they imagine Congress opens up the electoral votes and discovers a person disqualified by Section 3 has a majority of the electoral votes, they, in essence, now have two choices. One is to vote right now (laughs) to give this person amnesty so that they can become president. The other is not to. And so maybe, especially in that context, where we know Congress does have the substantive power to relieve the disability if they want to, it's not crazy to think that you know, the alternative, if they decide not to grant amnesty, is to decide not to count those votes. That, that's brilliant. And again, full disclosure on the other side, that's especially an argument for their power under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. And 14th Amendment is written by Congress for Congress. 
is written by a Congress that actually doesn't love the Supreme Court, the Dred Scott Court. The first sentence of the 14th Amendment is a smackdown of Dred Scott. doesn't love Andrew Johnson, the presidency. That's why it's taking certain pardon powers that ordinarily might one might think are presidential and giving them to itself. It's the body that's mentioned in Section 5 of the 14th Amendment itself. 14th Amendment is drafted by Congress for Congress, and, and I've written that, and Graeber has said some similar things. That's an especially strong argument for Congress's role under Section 3, and then, of course, the pardon power given to Congress under other provisions of Section 3. But full disclosure, my argument is more sweeping than that because I think Congress actually would decide issues of who's 35 and if there were you know, a, a new birth certificate that, that surfaced or something like that. I mean, I think there's a there's a, a big need, and I think maybe we'll we'll stop with this or or soon soon after. Um, I think there's a big need to get some of these issues, you know, as settled as possible. I mean, just for example, you know, in the context of you know, we have this case. Let's say let's let's say the Colorado Supreme Court case, um, you know, gets adjudicated and winds up saying, you know, Trump's not a, Trump can't be on the ballot. Okay, well, if he can't be on the ballot, and let's assume this applies to a bunch of other states too, then. Congress is unlikely to have a role, right? Because if he's off the ballot in a whole bunch of states, then either he won't be nominated because he can't win or he just won't win because he's not on, you know, they just won't have enough votes. You know, Congress, they might be able to disallow an electoral vote, but they can't impute one. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you know if, if, the, if the votes aren't there, they can't, if no elector voted for him, they can oh, actually an elector voted for him. Right. Well, so, and and so. unfortunately, Trump is easy to spell, unlike Murkowski. And there is the write-in issue that we can't just completely assume away, well, even well, if he right, weren't but, on the ballot. But for the hypothetical, we could. I mean, because the point is that it's, it's it becomes Oh, now you're starting less... to sound like a law professor. You can do anything <laughs> in the hypothetical. Well, it becomes far less likely that he'll be elected simply by virtue of the fact that these rulings... Yeah, it is, so, it is so, far so, less so, likely. So the point is that Congress never really will get a chance to weigh in. On, no, in no, no, no. What you just said is it's far less likely that Congress will, yeah. <laughs> will ever. Okay, whatever. The point is that the role of Congress, you know, as a percentage basis is diminished. Yes. Um, in that scenario versus the opposite, if it's determined that he, you know, is on the ballot, now it becomes more likely that, uh, that, become, that this is a question that Congress could theoretically face. So we need to know you know, ahead of time, well, then what? You know, because there, because if it's if it's unsettled, then there's going to be people possibly that in Congress that will say, oh, you know, Bowdoin Paulson couldn't even make up their minds on this, so so I'm going to say this is how it comes out. You know, so I think that uh, we all could use not necessarily just from you, obviously, but from the some consensus uh, that uncertainty is harmful. Here is my point. I hate to make. As you guys know, I hate to make policy or pragmatic arguments. You know, I basically say you should follow the law where it leads, even if it leads to results that you're uncomfortable with. But it is disturbing to contemplate this scenario where a Congress controlled by one party disallows the votes for the opposing party's candidate. As between this issue ending up in Congress's lap with a dispute about whether it actually has authority to reject electoral votes and a decision by a court, the U.S. Supreme Court, definitively resolving the issue of eligibility, 
the preference has to be, even for me, uh, departmentalist, that the Supreme Court's decision would be the final and conclusive decision as to eligibility and the enforcement of Section 3. It is infinitely preferable that the Supreme Court res uh, rule on these issues sometime in early to mid-2024 to having these issues come up on January 6, 2025. Oh, that's just the wrong answer. So it's good that our audience should hear a little bit because we're not all on the same page on, on every issue. One, as Mike just said, that sounds just like our friend Michael McConnell and we disagree with our mm. friend Michael McConnell. Actually about, oh, okay, I know how to hurt a guy, okay? Because you disagree with your with our, well, you love him all. but And he says, okay, because it's not just judges that you want to have um, uh, resolve these things. It's political secretaries of state and attorneys general and other election officials. But more than that, I, and this is what I wrote for my dear friend, um, Will Bode in the Supreme Court Review. I think Bush versus Gore was an utter freaking disgrace. Mm. I thought that the day it was decided, I thought that 10 years later when I gave the Dunwoody lecture at Florida, I thought that when Vic and I published a piece, Will was, you know, um, and others edited, um, which we referred to Bush versus Gore as rubbish, okay? The framers would have been, and, and now I'm going to start every ounce of authority that I have as someone who spent a lot of time with the framers. It's absurd to think that they thought that this was for an ordinary court rather than for the high court of parliament. It's equivalent in America, the body that far and away has the most legitimacy to crown a king, to give the king the commission equivalent. Steve Calabresi, he doesn't have a commission because the commission equivalent is handed to him by Congress. The body that ultimately has the most authority and legitimacy in the founding clearly, and in the Reconstruction, is Congress and not just some, some ordinary court. Now, I'm with you and with Andy. If ordinary courts have already taken him off the ballot as a practical matter, then problem likely to be solved, you know, just because he won't get a, a sufficient electoral votes. And oh, but if for some reason, actually, even if the Supreme Court said, oh, he's eligible, that would not end it for Congressman Amar in any way, shape, or form. And Mike, on mm. that day, you know, if it actually comes down to whether Trump is actually going to be certified or not, you would not want, if you're actually being remotely pragmatic, right. you would not want Congressman Amar to actually just, you know, sign off on the thing because five justices pulled a Bush versus Gore. I'll just say, I hope it doesn't come to this. <laughs> Justice Frankfurter speaks. Yes, I know. I'm with you. That's why we want, and we're all in agreement. Yeah. We're look. We're all friends, and we're all in agreement that this is a situation where we want early resolution. We are not actually Frankfurterians who think let's just wait and hope it it, it doesn't happen. We want some clear rules, even about who decides. Right. In advance. We have 13 months. It's December 6th we're recording this. We have 13 months uh, before uh, January 6th, 2025. So we have 13 months to avoid the January 6th solution to the Section 3 problem. I hope we can manage it. I'm not sure we can. And on that note, we'll, we'll hope to hear more from, from the uh, Messrs. Bowden, Paulson, and Writing, perhaps, on this. Um, and, and, of course, our podcast remains available 
uh, to them, and uh, hopefully they'll take advantage of it again as developments uh, ensue. So thank you guys thank very you. much. Uh, Jaws <laughs> 4, Godfather Part 4. Yeah. Hey, I want to see Godfather 4. So, okay, thank you. Thank you.